This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Let's begin by taking care of business. And the first order of business is gratitudes. So I want to express my big heartfelt thanks to Plant Yourself Podcast patrons, Michael Warabeck, Jenny Hazelton, Shell from Wales, Lynn McClellan, Kim Harrison, Anthony Disson, and the enigmatic plant-loving friend from New York for their generous support. You guys rock. Thank you so much. If you would like to join their role, join their number, you can do so at plantyourself.com. On the right sidebar, there's a couple of options for becoming a supporter of the show. Now, let's talk about food education. And when I was working on Whole with T. Colin Campbell, it seemed that food, plant-based nutrition in particular, was kind of the answer to like all of our problems. And that's an exaggeration. But when we got into the healthcare system, we saw that plant-based eating was going to pretty much fix it. When we looked at the environmental crisis from aquifer depletion to global warming to deforestation, we saw that a shift to a plant-based agriculture system was going to solve the problem. When we looked at human poverty, we saw the same thing. And so I began to think of plant-based nutrition as, as one of those keystone issues that if we get this right, kind of everything else begins to fall into place. And the converse, of course, is if we don't get it right, then everything else is rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Then I met, through Dr. Campbell, Antonia Demas, one of his uh, early students at Cornell, and she made it her mission, once she discovered his research, to take it and run with it. And she applied it to a different area, education, thinking that, well, how are we going to change people's hearts and minds? We have to do it through effective teaching in schools. And when I got to talking to her, as you'll hear in this interview, it became clear that food is not only fundamental to all these other problems, but food education is fundamental to fixing our education system. If we don't get that right, it's impossible to get anything else right. And, and the food issue, when it's taught well, taught the way Dr. Demas recommends and has demonstrated over decades, it deals with things you wouldn't think of like bullying, like poverty, like empowerment, like teaching about respect, teaching about math, teaching about STEM, science. And it, it really started to blow my mind when I heard her perspective, but also, and more importantly, her life's work, her research, and the things she's done to change school lunches, to change food education, and continues to do. So without further ado, Antonia Demas, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm very happy to talk to you. So what, what do you do? Tell us uh, first what, what you're up to, and then we'll get the backstory and explore it in more detail. The thing I do is educate kids about food. I call it food literacy education. So food in a very um, holistic sense starting with planting seeds and gardening. I'm really um, focused more and more, especially since the climate is having so many issues and the earth is having so many issues, on teaching kids about how they really do need to care for the earth and the food that they grow in it. Um, so I start with gardening and fundamentals of cooking, of nutrition, multicultural education, and I just expose children and adults to the joy of food, basically, every aspect of it. I make it fun. I make hands-on activities as part of the curriculum, so the kids um, engage all five senses in, in whatever the activity is with the food or the soil, and um, most of us learn best from sensory-based education, and when you think about it, when you're trying to remember something for a test or just recall something, very few of us can rely just on cognition, but if you have all five senses engaged in the process, then it really does trigger memory and it stays with you. So 
what I do is is um, introduce people to food in a fun way that um, will engage them and expose them to the wonderful tastes of healthy foods so they will choose those foods hopefully um, in their diet. Great. Now, you, you've sent me a, a lot of material that I've read over in, in preparation for, for this um, conversation. There's, it's very research-based. Um, yeah. You've been doing this for almost half a century, so I'm sure you've tried lots of things and paid attention to what worked and didn't work. I'm curious about how you got into this in the, in the first place. What was your first exposure to nutrition and to the healing power of, of plants in particular? Well, I ha I'm half Italian, and I really identify with the Italian part of my um, background. And I remember as a child, as a young child, going to visit my grandparents in New York City, and they had, we ate under the grape arbor and the fig tree, and they grew everything. And this was um, before ethnic cuisine was really popular and I remember all the wonderful smells of the basil and arugula and and the beautiful flowers um, food is an art form so it really affected me in a profound way that early exposure to the Italian attitude towards food that my grandparents had and many Italians have so I started cooking and I became like lots of Italians, um, obsessed with thinking about food. And that led me, at a young age, um, I was 14, I just couldn't eat meat anymore. And this was before there were any vegetarian cookbooks that I knew of, before people talked about vegetarians. So I became a vegetarian um, in the early 60s, and um and, and there was no cultural support for it at the time that I was aware of. So that led me to read a lot about food and nutrition and really develop my culinary skills. It was quite unpopular at the time and fortunately became much more popular later on. And there were a lot of cookbooks and um, people started paying more attention to it. So that was my background, my early background. And then um, when my son was born, 45 years ago, my we were living in Vermont, and we were living in um, a very rural setting in Vermont, and I wanted to expose him as a baby to other children. So I started volunteering at a Head Start daycare center in Montpelier, Vermont. It was a large Head Start daycare center, and I'd bring him in. And since food was my focus, um, I... I wanted to do cooking projects with kids, so I started cooking with them, and they loved it. And what I noticed was when they had literally hand, they put their hands in whatever the experiment was with the food, so they prepared something, they would eat whatever they prepared. And um, I was hired by the center, and I cooked with the children every day, and I worked with the cooks because I – thought that the Head Start philosophy was excellent in terms of um, they believed that the parents should be involved in the education of their kids, that kids should be outdoors every day no matter what the weather, and in Vermont that's, um, that can be pretty extreme, that you should read to kids every day. But the missing link to me, and this was 45 years ago, was the food that they served. Even though they cooked from scratch, they were still serving them things like hot dogs and hamburgers, and I didn't, did not think that those were the healthiest choices. Right. So me... my focus back then was on cooking with kids, and what I noticed consistently was that the kids weren't a problem. The problem was adult perception about what kids are willing to eat. Hmm. Let, and, let, can I, can I um, stop for a second and uh, kind of ex expand a little bit of that journey, some things I'm wondering about? So you, you said you became a vegetarian because you couldn't eat meat. Was was that that it made you sick or you know physically? Oh, I, or? oh yes. Um, thank you for bringing that up. I didn't explain the the reason why. The reason why was I thought about what I was doing when I ate meat, and I was eating an animal, and it just became a very 
unsavory thought to be chewing on the flesh of an animal and the blood and it was it was an emotional response um to and it was a sensory response i did not like the sensation so i got so i could not eat it it the thought of it just it was was very unsavory to me mm-hmm. did you, you know, not have not having any support or cultural support uh, or, or particularly knowledge about it, did you then, did you worry? Like, am I not getting, you know, enough nutrients? No, I didn't worry because I was healthy and I wasn't having any, um, any negative consequences other than people thought I was a little odd by not wanting to eat meat, but, but that didn't really bother me. Um, no, it, it got me to read as much as I could about nutrition and about food and cooking. And one of the things I discovered was there there were a lot of vegetarians in history, and that made me feel um, very secure and happy because a lot of them were were some really um, brilliant thinkers as well. So I thought if if they became vegetarians for whatever reasons, then I'm in good company. So um, it inspired me to do research at a young age on the history of vegetarianism and um, nutrition and develop culinary skills. Uh So it it sounds like your evidence into the the health effects of a vegetarian diet were your own personal experience and looking at notable vegetarians throughout history. Was that enough for you? Did you like raise your son as vegetarian? Or? Yes. And then I, I have a daughter too, and I raised them. But one thing I did um, when I raised them, I said, if you want to eat meat, let me know and I will not object because I didn't want it to be the forbidden fruit um, syndrome, which I've seen in other families quite a bit where you say you can't have this and so they sneak and want to try it. I didn't, I said, it's your choice. Um, And they they liked my cooking very much and so did all their friends. So um, I think that's another key factor where I, I gave them a green light. If you want to try meat, I'm not going to ever stop you. So um, it's your choice. It's your body. Um, And they tried chicken, I think, when they were growing up. But they are both committed vegetarians. So so I think that the way you treat it does have an effect. And I really do believe that the individual um, is – the person who should make the choice of what they eat. You, you should do what you think is best for, you, for your own body. Right. So this was uh, sort of in the 60s and 70s when there really, there really wasn't a lot of great evidence, scientific evidence. What, what led you to go from, okay, this feels right for me, it, it, it sensorily, taste-wise, and just just the way I think about the world, being a vegetarian feels right for me, to believing that this was something, that, that, that eating more in this direction was something that was good for people in general. Um, the, the research I did in um, examining what was in plant foods, what was in animal foods, um, the hormones, the um, chemicals, um, antibiotics that were in the animal products, I I really did think were not helpful. And I just knew that when I ate plants, I felt great. And um, everything I read about it uh, supported that because they're full of so they're full of fiber and vitamins and minerals and water and things that are proven to be beneficial to people's health. Mm. So it was reading and studying nutrition and examining what's how these foods are produced, how different foods are produced, mm-hmm. that um, made me con- convinced that this was a very healthy way to eat. So, so this was, I guess, in the in the eighties when you you kind of developed yeah. the curriculum. 
So I, I started teaching in, in, the, in the 80s, and I remember um, how difficult it was to, to get time to do anything that wasn't seen as sort of teaching to the, to the test, to the curriculum, to the standards that people were being held to. Is that one of the reasons that uh, you, you kind of included science and math and history and culture just so that you could fit the food stuff into existing boxes? Well, um, that's certainly, it's, it's much worse right now because now it's all about the test. So it's much more difficult to, to um, get to have the time in a crowded um, schedule in the school system. But I really do believe it's a fun way to teach these subjects. And food really can demonstrate basic concepts um, in all the disciplines in, in a very tangible way. So it's not abstract thinking about it or rote memorization. It's seeing it come alive. So, for example, in math, if you're learning fractions, um, if you can see what a quarter of a cup is to a half of a cup, to a cup and do experiments with measurements in that way, you can understand what a fraction is much more than just trying to think about it. Um, you know, some people have math brains, my son does. He, he loves thinking about math all day, but he's not in the majority. Um, and I think this way you understand the concept because you've seen it by doing experiments in the classroom that demonstrate what the concept is behind um, the idea. Hmm. Right, and, and it's, it sounds like when you're do dealing with food and certainly reading over the, the curricular descriptions that you sent me, this is, it's, it's very much, as you said, a sensory experience. It's very much like a John Dewey model of, right? Ex exactly, life, life and um, I had gone as an undergraduate to Goddard College, which is based on John Dewey's philosophy, and I actually wrote about John Dewey because what he did was learning by doing, and he he did carpentry and food experiments when he was doing his work, and his lab school had carpentry and cooking as as regular subjects. So I'm a big fan of John Dewey. The other thing that I'd like to um, really stress. Um, because I do take pride over the fact that I've never been kicked out of a school, is the fact that there, I really do not judge, and I don't say, um, I don't use food as a religion, which I think a lot of people do, and they think you have to be 100% one way, or, or it's never, you're never going to be healthy, and I think it's a process that is based on the individual's thought personally, and I don't want to try to coerce people to be a certain way. If I teach a child how to read labels and they know what's in junk foods, and most of them have no food in them, they're mainly chemicals, um, and they choose to eat that way, then I am not going to try to co to keep on them about it. I want them to think for themselves. And, um, and, and I think that that's a f philosophy also that's based on John Dewey and some of the early progressive educators, um, that it's, you need to have basic respect for the individual, and, and you give them the information, and then it's up to them what they do with it. And some people will never change, and some most people do, though. Once, once you know the world is no longer flat, then it has consequences, and you people deal with it in different ways. So um, I am convinced that kids need to have access to this education, and that's what's lacking. And then what they do with it is up to them. And I've been very happy to see what they do with it is – really change their family eating habits. So I've seen really positive results, but it's not through treating food as a religion like thou must eat this way or else, mm. because I think that backfires. Right. So before we get into the, 
the results that you've seen and, and what your programs look like. I think a lot of people in this country have, have been um, educated or, or sensitized to the issue of school food through uh, Jamie Oliver and specifically through, I think he, he did a, a almost year-long experiment in a county in Kentucky, right, where he came in and, and kind of shamed the lunch ladies and shamed the administration and and you know had a lot of evidence on his side saying that we're we're feeding kids terribly and so for, first before before we get into kind of the, the the Jamie Oliver experiment and and blowback and whatever you think about that what what is the truth behind what he was saying in terms of the state of how we feed our children especially school age children especially children in school through cafeterias through the national school lunch program and and other uh, subsidy programs I have written a history on the school lunch program, and I wrote it many years ago, and I thought it was going to be boring. It's anything but boring. The school People should know that uh, the school lunch program developed after World War II um, because there was public exposure. Actually, it started um, during World War One, and then again during World War Two, where a third of the young men, and it was only men back then, who tried to enlist in the armed services were rejected due to severe malnutrition. Now, their malnutrition stemmed from too few calories, too few nutrients. Ironically, today, a third of the young men and women who try to enlist in the armed services are rejected due to severe malnutrition, but the reason is too few nutrients, too many calories. So they're eating all these junk foods, and they can't perform at a basic fitness level because of it. Um, so the school lunch program... I mean, started because in large part of embarrassment um, after World War II. Now, at the, that time, because of all the victory gardens, we had a surplus of um, produce on the market. So we had all this food, and the farmers were having a hard time selling it. So the government came in in 1946 and made the school lunch program an act of Congress. It had a dual purpose from the inception. One was to, to feed hungry kids in schools, and poor kids got to eat for free. And there had been a lot of charitable groups prior to that time who were um, basically running soup kitchens within schools because there was no food in the school, and, and poor kids especially had nothing to eat and any a teacher knows a hungry child is not ready for learning. So um, this became um, a national program subsidized by the government whereby um, the, the USDA, the, the Department of Agriculture, is in charge of the school lunch program, which some people think is a conflict of interest because their main purpose is to support farmers. So USDA said we're going to take care of two problems that were happening in 1946. One, we're going to make this a um, national school lunch program so there will be food in all the schools so kids will be able to eat um, at, at lunchtime. And two, we're going to guarantee farmers that we will buy any of their surplus farm products. So, again, ironically, what happened was that became the demise of the small family farm because the subsidies that the small farmers got maybe amounted to $100 a year, and it promoted and accelerated the development of agribusiness farms. Um, and agribusiness farms usually do not use sustainable farming practices. So the um, government said, well, buy any surplus you have. And the subsidies became, and, and this is something I wish people would pay more attention to because people always say, well, you can't afford organic in schools. You can't afford local because it's too expensive. Well, why aren't we subsidizing? Why don't we change what we subsidize and subsidize the local organic farmer? I think the time is here to really take a 
close examination of that because we're subsidizing the biggest farms and they are making a lot of money and it's not the most, most healthful food. So I think that there are solutions within the system, but it will require people to become educated about how this system um, operates. And I do not, you know, back to Jamie Oliver, I I am very sensitive to the hard work that the food service do. Most of them are women who get paid minimum wage, and there's no money in the budgets for training them. And I have really focused a lot of my work on training food service. And they really do want to do what's best for kids. So um, they need leadership, and they need they need a culture that will support education in the classroom that will expose the children to healthy foods because they can't just put them on the line and expect kids to eat them. The kids are only being sensible if they reject something they've never seen before. But if they've cooked it in the classroom, then they will eat it. Hmm. So I think that, that was one of the, the sort of shocking things about the, the Jamie Oliver experiment is you see all this, you know, um, professionally prepared higher quality food and it's just going in garbage and i think that's that's right. that's he what didn't people understand that's what at people all think that it's is a, that an education issue he's not um coming from that perspective and and if the kids do not have the the again it's respecting the intelligence of the child and um, if you expose them in a way where you're not judging them, you're not blaming them or their parents, but you're giving them a fun activity to do in school and they learn about the history of the ingredients and they prepare something that's beautiful, they will eat it. But um, if they watched an adult like Jamie Oliver or anybody prepare the food, it's not the same thing. Or um, I think in his case, they didn't even see him making it in um, some instances. Um, so, so if somebody just puts some food that you've never seen before in front of you, you're not being being unreasonable by rejecting it. I, you know, we we would have killed ourselves off as a as a um, culture many years ago if we just ate whatever was put before us if we didn't know what it was. Um, because some foods are poisonous. So um, the kids are just being sensible because they're, they're rejecting it because they don't know what it is. They don't have the personal experience. And that's the key to what I do, the positive sensory exposure where they take ownership and they are involved in some way with the food. It's all about that education. And without that education, we're not going to change what kids eat. I really don't don't think so. It, um, on a widespread basis. So that that reminds me of when I was um, doing a lot of business consulting. There's a a movement called open book management that suggested that employers open their books to the employees. That they understand the budgets. They understand the sales goals. That that and so that they can modulate their own behavior to meet the big corporate goals and a bunch of companies did this with terrible results and it was you know so all of a sudden everybody knew how much they were making how much the ceo was making how much the stockholders were making and it wasn't it was just creating a you know resentment as opposed to empowerment and the missing piece turned out to be educating employees about I mean, aside from treating people fairly, which, which was important too, but educating employees about how the game was played, like giving them financial education. And the, co the companies that started doing this, started um, using a playbook called The Great Game of Business, treated, treated business as a game where you had to learn the rules, the same way you couldn't put someone on a football field and, and put them on the offensive line and not explain to them that you score by getting touchdowns and field goals. And it's, it's, it sounds like very much the same thing here, that if you're, if you're going to change people's behavior and you try to impose it on them from above as opposed to educating them, um, involving them, that it's, it's, it's going to end up looking worse than if you hadn't done anything. 
Exactly right. I I um, totally agree with that. And you have to start with the premise that people are capable. If you give them real information in an honest way and you have the fun element in the mix, then it, a school can be fun. It, learning can be fun. It, it, um, I've seen it over and over again. So how prevalent is the school lunch program in terms of percentages of kids who are either fully or partially subsidized and therefore kind of at the mercy of the USDA's conflict of interest? Well, it depends on the community. Um, I live in the Ithaca area, and it's about 35% in the county I live in. Um, most of the schools I've worked with, it's 99 or 100%. So I work with a lot of um, I have worked in the past in a lot of poverty communities, and in those communities, the kids are really dependent. It may be the only food that they get, so um, at least they're getting something to eat, but then you look at what they're getting to eat, and one of the trends in terms of the subsidies is um, the commodity foods have um, really um, turned into a lot of processed foods now. In the early days, when I did my dissertation research, I looked at the commodity list and I identified what I believed were all the healthy commodity foods. Either these are free foods that schools can use in the lunch program or they can use in the classroom to educate kids. So I, for my dissertation, I took all the healthy commodity foods, things like bulgur wheat, beans and I created units of study around the healthy commodity foods because I I know what the arguments usually are and one of them is cost so I thought if I can demonstrate if you use the healthy commodity foods that are currently not being utilized or underutilized then I'm going to price it out and tell you what it costs to um, prepare a meal and my entrees were um, as little as eight cents per entree per serving um, when using the healthy commodity foods. So, um, so I developed these units of study around them, and these are foods like bulgur wheat. It's got a weird name, and people don't know what it is. But um, if the kids cooked it in the classroom, they knew that it was just pre-steamed whole wheat that had been um that you don't even have to cook you just add hot water to and we made a number of different dishes out of it and then you could incorporate that in the lunch program because they cooked it they loved it and that's how you change the weekly menu by continuing to um, have the kids learn as much as they can about those foods and it's a very successful strategy. I've never seen it not work. But the education is messy um, on many levels. Education is a messy process where you can't determine always what um, the outcome is going to be. But it, it involves bringing food in the classroom. It involves time. It involves um, lots of things you have to consider. Um, and you have to know how to cook and you get the timing right, too, so everything's done and the safety is adhered to. I really stress the safety as well and the basic hygiene of um, around food because um, I think a lot of kids are growing up where their parents don't cook much at all, and they cooking is something um, – that they're not exposed. So one thing I noticed from your curriculum is that you talk with the kids about how much food costs and you have them do calculations. Yes, um, a lot of the, um, the, the schools I work with have a high rate of poverty and so I want to be sensitive to um, the real cost of the food and getting the most nutrition for the least amount of money. Um, so, so that is something that that I really try to focus on. Oops. So, when you get to a 
a school, a 99% or 100% school lunch program school, before you walk into the classroom and start doing your work, what are kids eating? Uh, what, what are they getting for breakfast? What are they getting for lunch? What are, what are their favorite foods? Um, they often have prepackaged um, breakfast foods. They, um, things like Pop-Tarts um, or um, these um, French toast sticks. Um, it's, it's basically convenience foods. And I started to mention that the trend with the commodity foods, it used to be whole foods straight from the farmer. So it could be a turkey or it could be um, uh, walnuts or it could be um, fresh fruit. But what happened over the years as our society went into more and more processed foods and they became present in, um, in, in grocery stores at an increasing rate, um, the school lunch people, um, see, I, I really believe we should pay them well and have cooking kitchens in every school. Right now, a lot of the food is cooked in a um, saddle light kitchen and uh, they then deliver it to all the other um, schools and so the quality is really compromised but um, I know we're talking about vegetarian nutrition but I'm using the turkey as an example. A whole turkey takes time to cook and you have to cut it up. Um, so what happens is the free turkey which requires more labor is then given to a company and turned into turkey nuggets. And so um, cost is added to that food and nutrition is, is denigrated because it becomes a fast food. So that's a trend um, with the, the plant-based foods as well that are free commodity foods. Cost is added to mimic our fast food culture. And more and more schools do not have cooking kitchens within the school. They rely on um, another school being the main kitchen and delivering their food. So that's a trend that I see, which I'm uh, that I find is very alarming. And I really do believe that if we could in, instead pay the cafeteria workers more to do real cooking. Um, have the cooking take place within the individual school and use a lot of um, fresh ingredients so the smells would be good, the, you know, having fresh herbs. And if, if so many more schools have school gardens, um, I, I think that preserving, you know, drying the herbs over winter or whatever, it just makes people feel good when there are good smells in a school. It makes you feel agitated when there are bad smells in a school. And um, there's something very comforting about, about um, really nice aromas from real food cooking within the school. So I, what I see is a lot of processed foods, a lot of convenience foods being served because the workers basically are not cooking in many of the schools. Um, and they would like to, it makes their job much more enjoyable um, rather than just heating something that was cooked elsewhere or um, putting out packages, prepackages of foods in plastic, which is really not good for the environment as well. So that's a trend, and um, I, I think some schools are trying to really improve the quality of foods, but if the kids aren't going to eat it, then um, they, it doesn't make financial sense for them to do it. So you can put um, – I, I went to one school um, on, um, in East Hampton, a private school, super fancy school. And I was invited years ago to, to give them some advice because the kids were the, – like the girls only ate white, white rice. And they had um, four-star chefs and gourmet and linen tablecloths. I mean, it was over the top. And 
again, it was all about no education about it. They had all these incredible choices every single day of this really high-quality gourmet food, but they weren't being educated in the classroom. And a lot of the kids had eating disorders, um, and they weren't choosing healthy foods to eat even though most of the foods were really healthy. So it, it really doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. It's all about education. Mm. So it, it sounds like it's a, you, you need to have a multi-pronged approach that if you just educate kids on, to, on what's good but you don't change the access or the economics, you're, you're basically <laughs> torturing them. Exactly, and that's a dilemma that I have um, and that I'm really focusing on now. I... I think in some ways it's more cruel to the kid to educate them so they know the difference and then not have to follow up in the cafeteria. And my biggest frustration is not having enough funds so I can take it to the next level. And um, what I'm trying to do is something that I developed in Baltimore many years ago where um, I I was getting really frustrated with these short-term grants with no – because you first have to get the kids to want to eat the foods. Then you work on the cafeteria. That comes later. but um, And that takes a lot of education, and um, not just of the cafeteria workers, but of the parents and the administration. And um, it's, it's really um, – there are a lot of moving parts to that. But – in 2003, I was invited to Baltimore to bring my curriculum there, and there's a high rate of poverty there. And so I said, okay, if I can get funding, um, I'm going to change my strategy and say um, I believe it takes about three years to get the buy-in from all the key people, the parents, the administration, the community, the teachers, um, and the adults are – really a hard part of this whole process. The kids are the easiest part once they're educated, believe it or not. The adults are the the harder part because they're so confused about food and nutrition. They don't know where to go to get accurate information for the most part. Um, so I, I said if I get the funding, and I did, um, the, the first school that signed up for it, I would say to that principal, which I did, um, I'll try my hardest to get funding for three years, and I want you to see the educational substance of this program. It's not just some um, cute little cooking program. It's got educational substance to it. And if you don't agree with that, that's fine. I will um, respect that, but I want to take it elsewhere because I want this to become a permanent part of kids' ed education. I really believe we need a food literacy educator in every school and that kids deserve access to this information so that they can make informed choices about what they eat because what we eat affects everything about who we are. And a lot of people haven't processed that, but um, I really believe it's true. And um, so three years went by. And um, at the time, um, Baltimore was a food desert in many, many ways. Um, but like many communities now, there's so much going on and um, school gardens everywhere and all of that. So, so there have been some really positive changes over the years. But we've, we had um, – I worked with the, the Maryland um, Art School that's right there in Baltimore and had artists work with the kids – designing and painting murals in the cafeteria so so um, visual learners can have access to this information about nutrition every single day they eat in the cafeteria. Um, I've worked, we, we developed a beautiful garden um, that got national, it got awards the first year because it was so nice and so you know we really brought a lot of different things to the school community community dinners every month where the kids would cook for the community and at first people could come for free and eat um so it was really successful and engaged lots of other people 
And three years went by, and the principal said, how about one more year? And I said, no, I can't do this. It's too difficult to get grant funding year after year. You really have to find the money, or I'm serious. I'm, you know, I'm, I will take it to a school that will try to um, make it a permanent part. So after three years, from 2004 to um, seven, it became a permanent part of that school and is a really successful program. That's the model that I'm aiming for, but it takes money um, because I do think it takes two to three years to get the buy-in. Takes money to then get the school convinced to find the money to make it permanent, and so that program um, has nutrition, cooking, gardening, community dinners, as um, as part of the curriculum from pre-K to to um, eighth grade. And I'm proud to say my daughter is a food educator there. So when you talk to the administrators about making it a permanent part of their, the, their budget and their school culture, what, what's the evidence, what are the arguments that, that you present that, that seem to work the best? Well, I try to do it from a um, um, cost-effective perspective because that's what they listen to um, and are concerned about. That's one of the many things that they are concerned about. So. Um, and it's hard to document anything in schools because there's so many variables. They're such dynamic places. But I always add a research component to this. So I document whatever I am able to document. And that means you have to, before you go into the school, you have to think what's your question and how are you going to devise a plan that will not interfere with the school day or interfere at a minimum to be able to get the data. So um, one of the things that that is cost effective is less absenteeism. If the kids are eating healthier foods, they're less likely to be sick. And if you teach them about something as basic as hand washing and how that um, is really important to their their health, um, and I do an experiment with hand washing. So, um, for example, they they write in they all have food journals, and I have them draw an outline of their hand and predict where they think um, the problem areas are in terms of germs um, hiding out. And so they draw where they think those areas are. And then I give them this lotion that glows in the dark, and they they rub the lotion on their hands. And then they go and wash their hands. So they should have all the lotion washed off, but it, they don't get it all washed off. We go into a dark room, and I shine a black light on their hands, and it glows in the dark where they're um, problem areas are, which is usually in between the fingers and the fingernails. So then they draw an outline of their hand again and draw, draw where their problem areas were in terms of washing. So they concentrate on those areas when they wash their hands. And it, it seems like a very simple thing. It is. But once they have that awareness, because it's sensory-based, because they've seen the glow-in-the-dark, um, uh, lotion still on their hands, it really does stick with them and they pay way more attention to hand washing. So something like that can lead to less absenteeism um, if you combine it with eating healthier foods. Um, and the kids really do feel empowered by this information and they want to bring it to their families. Um, it's been called the trickle-up effect. Um, how you educate the kid, it's the most effective way I have found to get to the family, especially when the kids are young. So kids are, are really powerful educators. And if your little um, elementary school kid comes home wanting to cook dinner for you um, and wanting to make it a healthy dinner, then um, most parents are, are going to feel very happy about that. And I've seen that kind of thing happen over and over and over again. Gotcha. So, so when you um, set up a, a research project, uh, and I guess you do that in, in, in all the, the schools where, where you set things up, you try to measure success. What are the, what are the questions that you ask 
Well, I I really um, believe that any researcher to be effective needs to be sensitive to who their audience is. So I meet with the core people, usually the principals, some of the teachers, the food service people, and ask them what questions they would like answered because I believe in a participatory research style. You know, I could go in as an outside researcher and gather my data and leave, and that's not going to be really useful to them necessarily. So they identify what they, um, with me, we work together and we identify what the research question should be. So, for example, it could be how can we get the parents more involved in um, in the in the school, or um, oftentimes the parents send snacks in, and the school says only bring in healthy snacks, and parents have no idea what that means, and so they send in junk food snacks, and and so the school's frustrated. How can we get them to understand, you know, what a healthy snack is, or um, or just various problems that the school has identified. Sometimes they can't come up with it, and so I offer suggestions. But um, we identify something that could be um, measurable. One thing that I have um, done over and over again, which I seems really simple, but it's it gives you a lot of information, is before I work with the kids, I have them name their three favorite foods. So they write down what their favorite foods are and then um, make a prediction about whether they think their their three favorite foods will be the same at the end of the school year. And so what I have found is typically at the beginning before any education um, in my curriculum has occurred, they'll put down ice cream, hot dogs, um, pizza, um, you know, typical um, unhealthy junk foods, basically, candy. And then at the end of the year, if they name some of the foods I've introduced them to, then you know that the education has been highly effective. So this project I did recently last spring in the in one of the Ithaca schools they um some of the kids named for their favorite foods after i i copied one of the the answers in the kids own, own handwriting kumquats garlic and mustard greens were the favorite foods and you know when you have it in the kids handwriting when when you have all this evidence you interview the kids you you have the documentation and you have they go from hot dog pizza and ice cream to kumquats garlic and mustard greens, that's a pretty profound behavior change. And um, and it's a relatively easy thing to do that doesn't take up much time because that's another issue in doing any kind of um, research in schools, the time for the documentation and making sure that you're not violating anything um, in terms of ethics, in terms of the research question. So I um, try to be aware of um, those two factors, ethics and the, the amount of time the documentation takes. But I've gotten really great um, data just from asking the simple question, what are your three favorite foods and do you think they'll be the same? And usually they say, yeah, I'm never going to change. And, and then they realize that because of this exposure with their peers, and that's another critical component of my work, the peers, um, the peer influence. Because um, I start out with this one rule, and it's the no-yuck rule. And the no-yuck rule is... Um, we're going to be cooking, learning about all sorts of healthy foods. Um, and the one rule that I have, nobody will ever be required to eat something they don't want to eat. So you take away the fear because a lot of kids have issues around being forced to try something that they don't want to eat. So we're not going to do that. But you can't disrespect the food 
or the people who are preparing it. So I bring in the issue of basic respect. We're going to be respectful to each other. And then I um, give them examples of what they could say that would not hurt people's feelings because bullying is really big in schools. And um, if you don't, if somebody is making something that they think looks really beautiful, some kind of food, and you go up to it and say, that's disgusting, I'm not going to eat it, you know, I appeal to um, how's that going to make you feel? And they say, really sad. So what could you um, say instead? And so I model different answers based on responses that the kids come up with, like, that has really pretty colors, or I like the design. So you're not lying, but you're not hurting their feelings. You're still making them feel good. And um, and that really is important to do in the beginning because if you start off with um, one kid who decides they are not going to want to um, – to participate and and they say something negative, they can influence the the rest of the group. And um, because the kids know they're safe, they don't have to try something unless they want to, um, but they can't disrespect the food or the people preparing it, which includes the cafeteria workers, then they see how excited the kids get trying new foods and what I have, and they all want to do it. and. Um, so the ones who may be resistant to trying new foods at first become really influenced by their peers and their peer response. And what I have found is the kids try to outdo each other in eating the most exotic thing that they could eat. And I'm telling you, raw garlic and hot sauce are, um, there are a lot of kids who just chow those down and and really get excited about it. Um, I've seen it over and over. If you could wave a magic wand and get the kind of funding you're looking for, wh what would be the future? What's the next 10 years of the Food is Elementary program in a perfect world? Oh, boy, that's a great question. And my magic wand would be having a food educator in every single school in this country. I think that if that happened, if we made that a priority, we could – I, th I think it's the thing that um, nobody's really looking at in terms of um, our health care disaster. And, uh, you know, I think I think we could save billions and billions of dollars and really um, save people's lives if that happened. If the kids had positive, real education based on, um, accurate scientific findings about food and how it affects our minds and bodies. And um, they really do deserve to have that happen. So I think it, the key is education and starting at a very young age, um, but also going through the kids' um, entire um, school years so it could be updated um, in terms of the subject matter that they're learning about. So the, the curriculum is really based on developmental levels, and you start out with the youngest kids and go to the older kids, and they do more involved work. So that's my magic wand, to have a um, paid-for food educator, paid for by our, our um, taxes, um, as a regular position in every school in America. That would be my magic wand. Mm. So for folks who are listening to this, who can write big checks, uh, what, what should they do next? They should get involved in um, their own kids, if they are parents, in, in their education and find out if there's any type of food education going on and I think they should advocate for it if there isn't and there probably isn't. The meat and dairy industry send a lot of materials to schools for free and the teachers um, often don't really have the backgrounds to analyze 
the materials, and I think there needs to be um, a counter in terms of real nutrition information um, that also includes the the growing food, the gardening component, the ecology component, and um, and what we're doing to the planet by um, having all these prepackaged foods that are full of chemicals. So I think that people really need to advocate for public education about about these critical issues that affect everybody. Whether you have kids or not, it affects everybody. Mm-hmm. And if somebody wanted to just start doing this, they, they don't have a, a giant bank account, but they want to get involved. I, I have some of your material here. It's got, you've got recipes, you've got lesson plans. Is that stuff... Um, you know, open source. Do people have to take a course with you? How how do you empower people to to continue the work that you're doing? Um, they have to take a course with me. I I offer trainings in food education, and the training is really important because the way the educator. I mean, you could buy my curriculum, but that's not what I recommend. Um, there's a strategy involved in how to teach it. And if the strategy is not adhered to, it's not going to be anywhere near as effective. And, um, you know, as I believe in the um, experiential um, education for kids, I also believe in it for adults. And so it's a two-day training, and um, the strategy involves asking questions, um, not just giving answers to the kids. And it involves a real dynamic in terms of um, how you engage the kids and how you really have to let them do things on their own individually to to gain that experience Um, because that's what really excites them. I've seen a direct correlation between how involved the kids are the kids are in whatever the um, experiment is, the unit of study or is that is in the curriculum, and how much they'll eat it at a um, later date. So the more hands-on, the better. And the adult really needs to be trained in this type of education and experience it for it to be effective. So I'm happy to give out my phone number or email if people are interested. Um, it does require funding to get it going because especially in the beginning, the school's not going to put a penny into it in most cases. So, um, so yeah, what's, so, what's, the, uh, what's the website or email? How can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Um, by emailing me, and my email is Antonia, A-N, T-O-N-I-A-D, as in delicious, the number eight at yahoo.com. So Antonia D8 at yahoo.com. Awesome. Well, Antonia Demas, thank you so much. The, the work you're doing in the world is inspiring. It's clearly necessary. It seems to be working, and we need a lot more of it. So uh, thank you again for, for taking the hour and for taking devoting your career to this uh, really, really important mission. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I'm still doing it after all these years, and um, and I really, I have so much evidence that it worked and the kids deserve it. I just wish it would, that I could have that magic wand because um, they really, we really do need to bring this to our children. Right on. All right, thanks again. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. If you're new to the show and you want to catch up, go to plantyourself.com and you can find archives of all our previous shows. If you'd like to help support the show, you can do it in a lot of ways. You can leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. You can share this on social media and you can become a patron by going to plantyourself.com and looking on the right sidebar for the donate button. 
So here's a new feature of the podcast that I'm trying out, actually knowing which shows I'm going to do when. So I've got a few of them in the can for upcoming weeks, and here they are. Next week, Dr. Alan Goldhammer, uh, co-founder of True North Health Center on the fastest way to improve our health. The week after that, Dr. Janice Stanger, and we talk about hormonal disruption and dietary dangers. The following week, a fascinating discussion with Harvard researcher Irving Kirsch on placebos and antidepressants. After that, we've got a double header featuring Dr. Michael Greger, author of the best-selling book, How Not to Die. It's a double header due to my mistake, which is I recorded a podcast episode with him about two years ago that somehow I never released. It just sat on my hard drive, and I didn't find it until I just recorded a new episode with Dr. Greger about the book, How Not to Die. So I figure since the second interview talks about the first one a little bit, that I would get it into the lineup. So that's two weeks of Dr. Michael Greger, who is the founder of nutritionfacts.org. And after that, last one in the can for right now, Dr. Linda Carney on the dangers of excess estrogen and kind of a, a broad look at women's health in general. If you live near me, there's a whole bunch of events coming up in February that you should know about, starting with a Healthy Chocolate Dreams class this coming Saturday, February 13th uh, in Chapel Hill. There's a free introductory dinner on the 18th, that's a Thursday, and for members of Triangle Be Well, my local and international health consulting practice, if you're in the area, I'm doing a three-hour boot camp on how to get started on Saturday, February 20th. Tonight, Tuesday, February 9th, I'm hosting a Blab session, which if you're not one of the hip kids, like I wasn't until a couple of weeks ago, Blab is an online uh, video streaming platform, and I'll be hosting a session with uh, Dr. Garth Davis, who is the author of Proteinaholic, and we'll be taking questions. So if you want to know more about that, just go to blab.im and type in my name, or better yet, Proteinaholic, and you'll find that session. It's from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you log in with Twitter, you'll be able to comment, ask questions, maybe even join uh, as, a, uh, as a live video seat to, uh, to talk to us about it. In my online TV show, Triangle Be Well, I have just concluded the fourth of a one-part series on changing behaviors. Somehow I got into my slideshow on how to shift habits and behaviors, and I thought it was an hour pre presentation because that's what it's been when I do it live. But when I have the luxury of being able to really expand on things, it turned into four hours of education on how to change habits and behaviors. I think it's good stuff. You can check it out at trianglebewell.com and just click on the TV link and all the episodes are right there. In garden news, the gardening is taking place at the dining room table right now. We're looking at seed catalogs and trying to figure out what we want to grow a lot of next year. The only thing we all agree on is the more basil, the better. Basil is a great crop. It doesn't take a lot of care. It's very resistant to most pests, and it grows in such profusion and abundance, at least in our garden, and it's really one of my favorite all-time foods. And so my wish for you is to identify something in your life that has that same characteristic of being both abundant and a favorite. It's so easy, for me at least, to take the things that are abundant for granted Right. As Joni Mitchell saying, you don't know what you got till it's gone. So let's take some time this week to look at the things that we have in our lives that are abundant and bring us great joy. And with that, as always, be well, my friends. <laughs>